0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Five agencies tell employees they could get one of the new COVID vaccines within eight weeks. Employees at the Bureau of Prisons, Defense Department, State Department, Indian Health Service, and Veterans Health Administration are on a list from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to get shots from Pfizer or Moderna. CNBC reports the Bureau of Prisons says it's working with CDC already and Operation Warp Speed on distribution. Four Democratic senators on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee have questions about how the Department of Veterans Affairs will distribute those vaccines. A letter to VA Secretary Robert Wilkie asks for details on the agency's plan to allocate vaccines, at what level the agency will make decisions, and how the VA will communicate its plan, among other issues. The letter also asks for VA's plan to keep the vaccines cold enough to stay effective. Four new transition documents are out from the Office of Government Ethics, an ethics guide for agencies, a guide for nominees, and a financial disclosure checklist are the documents OGE released for the executive branch. The fourth is a list of presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed jobs for congressional publication of the Plum Book. Many of President-elect Biden's choices for leadership jobs in his administration so far have experience with the agencies he wants them to lead. His choice for DHS is Alejandro Mayorkas. He was deputy secretary at the agency in the second Obama term. Chris Kemsky is CEO of Kemsky Strategic Solutions, former acting undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security. You have an advantage in helping me understand the leadership styles of the people uh, that uh, President-elect Biden has chosen DHS because you were there and worked with a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. How it, how important is that experience going to be for somebody who walks in the door theoretically sometime in January or early February to lead an agency like DHS?
1: Well, thank you, Francis, and I think it's enormous. Uh, you know, it's often said that DHS is the hardest job in the cabinet uh, as secretary, and certainly having that experience uh, is going to be a, a really big deal. Uh, with Ali Mayorkas. uh, Having served as uh, a component head with Citizenship and Immigration Services and then as Deputy Secretary, he's going to have a really good understanding on day one uh, of all the missions at the department.
0: What's your sense of what an agenda might look like inside DHS, especially considering there have been so many acting positions there for a long time and uh, just open jobs? It strikes me maybe the most important thing will just to get humans into seats.
1: That's true. Uh, There's going to be a real push, I think, to to do away with this acting uh, perspective. Uh, There's so many actings in the department, and having served as acting undersecretary for management, uh, I know that you can do a lot in those jobs, but you really do need to have Senate-confirmed individuals in those positions. And so uh, I think it's going to be an important first step, uh, followed by, I think, immigration, uh, probably COVID-19 rollout, uh, climate change, and emerging threats is kind of the first bucket of issues that they're likely to tackle.
0: You get to the one that I think is front and center of everybody's mind as discussion continues and, and uh, news items continue to happen about the possibilities of vaccines very, very soon. It's entirely possible that a new DHS secretary might jump right in the middle of that, both distribution-wise, both within the agency and all across the country. How does that inform the way that somebody going into DHS, whether at the secretary level or further down, what, what should that person be thinking about?
1: Well, I think secretarial nominee uh, Mayorkas is going to have a, a real leg up on this because he was there during H1N1, uh, Ebola, uh, other times that we had FEMA really in the, at the cornerstone of what the national strategy was uh, around uh, rolling out effective uh, countermeasures. And so whether it's, you know, a distribution of a vaccine this time or pre-positioning uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, it's going to be essential that that's done not only for the public, but also for the 240,000 employees across DHS. And so I think that having done this before, at least in some version, uh, will really give uh, he and the team an advantage.
0: I scribbled down that exact phrase before you said it. Nobody, I can never prove that to anybody, but I wrote down, they've done this before. That's the thing that I think is being lost on the discussion about logistics, especially about the vaccine in the general, excuse me, in the general population, isn't it, Chris?
1: That is absolutely true, and it, it's a real challenge. It's a, a logistical feat to, to to do to do this, uh, certainly on any in any conditions. But to try and roll out, you know, 330 million doses uh, across the population is really a Herculean effort. And uh, it's going to take a coordinated uh, approach, not only by the federal government, but working uh, throughout the, the state and local governments to actually get those distributions and those shots in the arms of, uh, uh, of all Americans. And so I think DHS will play an essential role in that uh, with HHS and other agencies.
0: An issue there at DHS that you and I have talked about before that I know the Obama administration worked very hard on, and I know the people in the Trump administration have also worked very hard on, is morale at the agency. Morale at DHS— trends every year poorly in the federal employee viewpoint survey what does a new agenda whether it's at the department level or inside some of the components that are not doing as well individually what does a, a new agenda for driving better employee morale and engagement look like in your view chris
1: well and i think that's going to be an important part of uh, what the next uh, months look like at dhs uh, because as you indicated with the uh, federal employee viewpoint surveys dhs has always performed poorly. Uh, Now, there are a lot of employees, and there's 29,000 managers across the department, so there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, Jay Johnson and Ali Mayorkas, when they served together, uh, really had a focus on improving those FEV scores. Uh, And CIS, when Mayorkas was there, was also uh, really on the cusp of moving in the right direction, uh, saying thank you to employees, uh, recognizing their work, having clear performance metrics uh, for promotion. Uh, All those things were ingredients that helped turn CIS around, and I think you're going to see that again uh, when uh, Ali Maricus is confirmed,
0: the challenge in those numbers always is, though, are is an agency doing things to drive numbers, or is an agency doing things to improve the way employees think about their agency, and the driving of the numbers is the byproduct. Does that make a difference in the way one formulates strategy, Chris?
1: It does, and you really have to be um, in this for the long haul. So that's an insightful view of it. Uh, you can't; it's not going to turn around in a couple of years. But you really do need to put it on a path. And we know with the the studies that were done inside of DHS uh, with the help of the Partnership for Public Service and others, that uh, there are things that work, uh, but they do take time and they need to be sustained. And I think you're gonna see that start again uh, in January.
0: Chris Kemsky, next time you have to tell me about that football behind you. Thanks very much for coming on. (laughs) Thank you, Francis. Up next, accelerating change all across government, straight ahead on Government Matters. The innovation cells driving that change and how they'll evolve. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Air Force's innovation ecosystem, AFWORKS, wants to help, wants help from industry to create a wearable device to detect COVID-19. It's one of many projects accelerators across government have taken on to foster innovation. Megan Metzger is founder and CEO of Decode. Megan, thanks for coming on the program. Is there a risk at some point of having so many accelerators going so many different directions that people are doing the same work?
2: Oh, that's definitely always a risk. Um, One thing that we focus on at Decode and encourage any government organization that's going to run an accelerator is to take the time to stop and look across the environment, across all of the agencies, and leverage the work of what is going on in other programs. And we see several organizations come together More recently, you'll notice that the Navy and the Air Force and the Army are starting to team up when they're working on either challenges or accelerators just for that reason.
0: What do the most effective accelerators do to be effective, Megan?
2: Well, there's really three things that really effective accelerators focus on. So the first is starting at the very beginning with the problem statement. You have to really be outcome oriented. So the best accelerators will focus on the problem that that organization wants to solve, not the technology type. So for example, I need to make a decision really fast, not I need AI. So you focus on those outcomes. The second is going to be planning ahead for what's after the accelerator. We see a lot of accelerators you know, come up with great prototypes, but then nothing happens. So you have to start day one planning on what does follow on look like from budget and procurement and all of that. But the most important thing is the accelerators that succeed accelerate both the tech and the government. So you have to prepare the companies for how to work with government and you have to prepare the government for how to lean forward and work with tech.
0: All right, a couple pieces there. The first one, the problem statement, is something that acquisition professionals, especially in the department, Of defense have been talking about for probably well since there's been a department of defense let's not write the list of requirements first let's write the problem that we're trying to solve first and they have been able to get out of that habit what's the why have accelerators been good at that when the rest of the government hasn't been
2: well i think one of the reasons is that we have to be when it comes to emerging tech because part of the whole reason we run accelerators is to discover the type of technologies that are out there. And so if you're too specific, you're going to get very limited applications coming in from tech companies. So you have to leave it broader so that you can discover kind of the art of the possible when it comes to emerging tech. I think too, really good accelerators, you know, like Decode and others come in and actually help guide and train and educate all of those involved on how to do that effectively before they ever put it out. We call that translating DOD to Silicon Valley. If you put out a list of requirements, tech companies won't understand it. So it's kind of out of necessity.
0: The second one that you mentioned seems self-evident to me thinking about what the next step is or how you get out of whatever situation you get yourself into. Um, The third one, the the tech government divide, bridging that chasm, you alluded uh, to it just a moment ago if the companies that want to do business with the Pentagon or the Pentagon wants to do business, and I don't mean to pick on the Pentagon, it's the civilian agencies too. But if if those companies don't understand what you're talking about, they can't help you. That seems obvious. Why is it not obvious, Megan?
2: Well, I think there was a lot of Um, Initial traction and accelerators focused on really early stage companies. So traditionally, an accelerator focuses on getting a company from concept to product and building a company as fast as possible. Uh, An accelerator in the government needs to focus more on the second part, on the product or that technology into the government. And so the courses need to look different and the mentorship and the guidance you give has to look different. So there's a difference in building technology and there's a difference in building technology with the DOD you know, regulations or FedRAMP in mind from the start. And so um, working with accelerators to understand that's really critical in order to see success.
0: How much of this is incumbent on the government to fix itself in some way or other?
2: Well, the government, I think where, like I said, where we see the most success is when it focuses on training and providing you know, kind of a a common understanding to all government stakeholders that will be involved. I think the most important part is a lot of times we focus on innovation training and innovative procurement training for the folks that are gonna be prototyping, but you have to train the government stakeholders that will catch the prototype and take it to scale. And that's one of the biggest gaps that we see. And again, one of the most important things, train everyone, including the catchers of innovation on how to scale it and how to work with emerging tech and really just think a little bit different.
0: All right, about 30 seconds left. How does one train in that way?
2: Uh, Well, obviously you can call Decode. We've been doing this for quite some time. We trained about 500 government leaders last year, Um, but I think some of it is really starting early conversations. The day you launch uh, an accelerator is the day you should be talking to the programs that will have to scale and then have a common understanding of what's needed to be innovative in your budget and acquisitions. And if you're stuck, give us a call.
0: Megan Metzger, thanks very much. Up next, making the tough decisions during open season. Straight ahead on Government Matters. Where to start if you haven't done anything yet? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. If you work for the government, you haven't chosen a new health care plan yet or looked at the options, your time is almost up. Open season ends Monday, December 14th. It is not time to panic yet, but it is time to start doing some research. Walton Francis is a consultant, health insurance expert. He's author of the Checkbook Guide to Health Plans. What is the absolute last minute, Walt? Is it when on December 14th do people need to get their information in?
3: (laughs) By midnight uh but you know if you wait to anywhere close to that you've made a terrible mistake because you don't want to be rushed you can actually make a a really good plan decision with maybe half an hour or an hour of work maximum and it's not all even boring i'm not we're not talking about reading all the small print details of a plan's brochure it's just checking out looking at the landscape for possible options um most people don't even know that high deductible plans exist or what they do. Well, why don't you just go to one of them, read read at the plan website or in the brochure the highlights of what does this plan do and how does it do it, check, just tiptoe through the tulips a little bit to check out a few alternative plans, and of course, most importantly, be sure the plan you're in still remains at least a moderately good choice <laughs> by seeing how the plan is changing for next year, by making sure the premium isn't taking a big jump. Some are. The average increase next year is only about 5% in enrollee share premium, but there's some that are going up zero, a few that are going down, and a few that are going up 10 or 15%. Uh, So
0: do just a little checking around. You you both teed me up for my next question and gave me a Tiny Tim reference in the same statement. It's pretty incredible, (laughs) Wall. What is a high deductible plan, and how are they different from the plans that people are used to?
3: It's a plan where the plan will not cover any of your regular medical expenses except your annual physical, which it, which is always free, uh, until you've paid as much as two thousand dollars in expenses out of pocket. But the plans all these plans all provide a health savings account, which is typically something like a thousand dollars. And you can use that account, or you can, if you have little or no expense, just save it and roll it over to next year. It's your money. It's like an IRA on steroids. The money goes in tax-free, paid paid a new contribution every year from the plans premium, so you don't have to put up anything. It grows every year tax-free, and when you use it for health care, it comes out tax-free. So it's just a great deal if you don't have high expenses concur- You know every year. Uh, some diabetics have huge drug expenses every year. Probably not a good choice for you. But for anyone young and healthy or anyone old, older who's in at least reasonably good health, uh,
0: by all means, check them out. So when you talk about the health savings account, it uh, takes me to the flexible spending account, which you told me last time we talked. Only about 25 percent of federal employees sign up for one. What are they missing out on, Walt?
3: Well, they're missing out on a chance to get about a 25% savings on whatever they spend out of pocket for healthcare. Now, the flexible spending account is a separate decision. It's unrelated to the plan choice you make. You have to make it every year. If you don't set one up during open season, you're out of luck for the next year. Uh, You can set aside up to uh, $2,500 or more in money that otherwise would be in your paycheck, but the money is now untaxed. And if you know that next year, for example, you're going to see an out-of-plan out-of-plan network doctor uh, five or ten times and pay 50 bucks each time, or you have a lot of out-of-pocket expenses uh, at the pharmacy, you know, if you anything you can predict, if you set up at a flexible spending account an amount corresponding to that, uh, you can save roughly, depending on your exact tax bracket, but including payroll taxes, which are a big chunk, you can save roughly 25% or 30% of what you spend out of pocket
0: and at least some of those plans have made it so easy for people to use their accounts they're issuing debit cards that you that deduct your money automatically from your savings accounts right i mean the these companies have really tried to make this as easy as possible for people
3: absolutely and that's that applies to flexible spending accounts as well as to high deductible hsa accounts and to consumer driven hra accounts there's a lot of different kinds of accounts floating around out there but once you're in one they sound a little daunting turn out turns out to be really quite easy to use them
0: we've talked about the flexible spending accounts we talked about health insurance we always do we don't always give uh, enough attention i think to the dental plans and uh, to uh, the the vision plans what should people think about as they're examining potentially doing something with their fedvip accounts
3: Okay, number one, uh, of course, if you expect any expensive tooth problems next year, and maybe don't even expect, uh, a dental plan can be a very good deal to make, to establish some boundaries about uh, around what you might be expected to spend. Typically, they pay all of your routine expenses, your annual checkup, you know, or semi annual, whatever, uh, for, for you and your family members. Um, they give you a big discount on the less expensive stuff like fillings uh but you will probably pay half or two-thirds of the really expensive things but still like crowns and bridges and but still that's a big saving if you're only paying half um there are new de- dental plans this year there's a slew of them so <laughs> we're, we're near that point of more overwhelming choices and there's a little known fact that most of the health plans also provide some dental benefits Either as part of the plan or as an unofficial benefit hidden on a page in their brochure that says uh, other plan benefits. Uh, and uh, that's one of the reasons why you should search a brochure using a term like dental, okay, or maternity for something you expect to have uh, expenses in next year. But the, the open season runs concurrently with the um, uh, health plan open season. It's a different website, a FedVIP website. You pay the entire premium, there's no government subsidy. Um, You can use the FEDVIP tool for looking at the official FEDVIP plans, okay? or you can use the checkbook tool to look at official and unofficial dental benefits. Um, The vision plans are uh, quite a different kettle of fish. There's also a number of them. They basically pay for one pair of glasses a year or one contact lenses pair a year. and and there, there's not a whole lot of frills, but you do get big discounts. So for some, for many people, it's a convenient way to to go to the eye, eyewear store that you otherwise would go to, and and get a, a big uh, cut in in what it costs. But Walt, there's no we are, big savings here.
0: Well, a lot more I'd love to cover, but we're out of time. Thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you. Thank you.
2: I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune in to the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn.
0: That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.